Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. On today's episode on New Books Network, I'm sitting down with Dr. Jason Gilmore, Associate Professor of Communication Studies at Utah State University, to discuss his recently published Bloomsbury Press book, written with Charles Rowling, titled Exceptional Me, How Donald Trump Exploited the Discourse of American Exceptionalism Through Systematic Comparative Analyses. Exceptional Me details the various ways that Trump strategically altered and exploited the discourse of American exceptionalism to elevate not the nation, but himself personally. Gilmore and Rowling call this Trump's exceptional me strategy. I'm Dr. Julia Gossard, Associate Dean for Research in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences and Associate Professor of History at Utah State University. Thank you so much, Jason, for joining me today to discuss Exceptional Me. I have a lot of questions I'm excited to ask you. What inspired you and your co-author to write this book at this time? Most of what I had been writing up till the book were kind of historical takes on the presidency since World War II. I was writing a paper that was very much about how presidents have invoked American exceptionalism in foreign contexts mm-hmm. out in the world. It's, it's a diplomatic thing to say, I'm the greatest country on earth when you're surrounded by foreigners. So kind of talking about the, the creative ways that they do that. And one of the reviewers said, why is Trump not in this? It was, you know, maybe a year into his presidency. Why is Trump not in this? And I thought, well, I just don't have data on Trump. And it was more wise. It was more, you need to have Trump in this. And so I started coding. I mean, I code just by watching presidents by, at this point. I just kind of naturally do it now, or I'm trained to do it. But when I really focused in and said, all right, what, what's he doing and how is his relationship with American exceptionalism? This is unlike any president ever. This is just a new relationship with American exceptionalism. Every president comes in and pretty much bows to the notion of American exceptionalism, finds ways to wax philosophical about American exceptionalism, like really get creative, right? Mm-hmm. How does it, what does it mean to each one of them individually and their vision for the nation? And Donald Trump, it was about him. That same language I've been looking for, greatest, unique, only, first, all of that language that draws you to the notion of American exceptionalism, he would use it but relative to himself. After a little while, I started noticing some some trends. I was like, I, I think I'm going to write a book about this. Yeah, that's really cool. And I think that leads me into another question because Exceptional Me is simultaneously a work that studies you know, the history of communication, especially presidential rhetoric, but also public strategy, presidential history. It really is a transdisciplinary book. So, and you had just mentioned your coding by watching. Can you talk a little bit about your methodology as an academic writing this? Yeah. So the method I use is is called a a content analysis. So 
Basically, what I'm looking for is this concept of American exceptionalism as we've defined it, the work that looks at uh, invocations of this notion. And some of those are really tough to really decipher whether you are or are not. So the type of, of research that I do looks at kind of the explicit invocations of this notion, right? When you just come right out and say, we're the greatest nation on earth, we're the only one that's ever done this, we're the first in the world to do this. Um, I'm also interested in kind of trends over time. And so this methodology allows me to not only see those, the kind of in-depth, here's how it's happening in each president, but here's kind of over time. <laughs> and my research looks not only at kind of individual presidents, but we look at, you know, in times of war, is this more uh, important? How is this used throughout uh, American history? So that's yeah. that's kind of what, how we arrive at the, the themes and whatnot. Are you... Primarily looking at official speeches, are you looking also at things like articles, interviews, things like that? What are, what primarily sources are you looking at? Yeah, so the, the sources are usually um, uh, mass-mediated speeches to the nation. So these are things that people tune into, the State of the Unions, um, the inaugural speeches. It's gotten a little bit more complicated over time because that used to be very clear. ABC, NBC, and CBS would broadcast that speech, and then you just knew that that was a quote-unquote major speech to the nation. So as of late, it's become a little bit more difficult to identify what is a major speech. But what we're looking for is the speeches that that hit everybody who's paying attention, right? And perhaps a lot of people who wouldn't otherwise be paying attention, but because it's the moment of a State of the Union or a major speech to the nation, they're, they're tuning in. Throughout the book, you really make this, this argument that, you know, Donald Trump is the subject of it that's there. But as I said a little while ago, this is a book that isn't just about Donald Trump. It's about presidential speech writ large. And that's one of the things I appreciated most about it is I also learned about some of the strategies, some of the speech patterns that previous presidents or presidential candidates have used. For instance, despite the often repeated GOP line that Democrats are not proud to be American or proud of America, you had coded John Kerry and Barack Obama invoking American exceptionalism at a rate five times as much as former President Donald Trump. Were there other statistics that you had coded and looked at that you were very surprised by seeing that maybe ran contrary to either political connotations or popular assumptions? The fact that Barack Obama became so dedicated to the idea of American exceptionalism, and they can they can accuse him of picking it up because because they started attacking him on it. But if you look at his speech, even before he became in the 2004 speech um, at the Democratic National Convention, before he ever becomes a candidate for the president, he talks about how in no other place on earth is my story even possible. One of the things that, that we found through this analysis is that Barack Obama has invoked this, this notion more than any president, in fact, in the history of the presidency. All the way, I have coded every speech all the way back to, to Washington, although they didn't speak as much in public sure. back then. But the notion of American exceptionalism, he invoked more than any other president wow. by a long shot. In part, um, because uh, he was being challenged on it. You're not patriotic. You don't mm -hmm. wear the pin. Uh, in part because he saw America as this unique place for this biracial candidate to, to become president. Uh, 
in part also because he was being attacked unfairly about his his notions of of patriotism. Uh, That was fascinating. Um, You know, uh, off mic, you and I talked about George W. Bush um, being not as braggadocious as we perhaps historically remember him as being with the notion of American exceptionalism. I think a lot of people just convinced themselves that that's how he spoke. But when you actually get into the language, it's not quite as much. I mean, like every other president, he invokes American exceptionalism. But I think the real outlier was Trump, because every other president pretty much invokes American exceptionalism in a very similar way. They come immediately in the door with reverence for it, right? They start to kind of map out their vision for American exceptionalism and their vision, but never is it anything of a denial of American exceptionalism. It's always a, here's who we are, but here's how I'm going to build off of that, right? Here's my contribution to that. Uh, Some have come along and said, we need to restore it. Reagan was one of those, right? We need to bring our shining city on a hill back, things like that. But every president before Donald Trump really had this kind of similar approach. Now, each of them had their own notion of what it meant. They related it to different things. Barack Obama, took uh, opportunity to relate it to a multicultural vision of America, right? That this notion of American exceptionalism should include all of us, things like that. So each president kind of brought their own flavor to it, but it was always kind of in the same manner, right? They all respected it. They all had reverence for it. And I think on a strategic side, they understood that they could not naysay it and and continue to have a political career. This is where Donald Trump just completely breaks the mold. He doesn't walk in with reverence for it. In fact, he's quoted before he even starts the presidency as saying, I don't like the term. I don't like it. I think it's because he heard Barack Obama saying it so much Mm -hmm. that he was rejecting it. But he wasn't really reading the room of who the Republican Party was at that point, because their whole platform, the first line of their platform was, we believe in American exceptionalism. Full stop. Next paragraph. Like they had invested the last four to eight years of their lives, of their political identity into building this notion of American exceptionalism. And now their, their, uh, their new standard bearer walks in and says, I don't like it. Looking at that, especially this rejection of this GOP identity, right? We believe in American exceptionalism, period. Do you think that part of Trump's reasoning for not invoking American exceptionalism was initially to draw himself as fundamentally different from all politicians. So he's running against Hillary Clinton clearly in 2016 and again against Joe Biden in 2020. But do you think that this personal exceptionalism is something that he's trying to make himself so different from all politicians? Very much so. So his shtick is in indeed, I'm I'm different from everybody. As a candidate, he comes in saying that the country is in ruins, right? So we call this unexceptionalism because he uses the language of we are no longer the beacon, right? We are no longer the leader of the free world. Right. We're not number one anymore, right? All of these are anti-American exceptionalism. He's, he's denying that we are American exceptionalism. And so he comes in the door and says that this is happening. But he's also saying that it's not just Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton 
he goes straight at the standard bearers of his own party. So 2016, if you think back to who the the candidates were to take them down. His, his strategy is to go after every all politicians. I call it blame everybody. Everybody's to blame because that means I'm the only one who can fix it. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is, is all of us, if we think back and we think about the, the slogan, drain, your, drain the swamp, the, the thing is, is we would all think that that happened from the get-go of his campaign. He actually tested that a month before the election. Yeah. Wow. So Drain the Swamp was only up and running and in his uh, uh, supporters' hands, you know, T-shirts and things like that. He would say it at every event uh, for a month leading up to uh, his election. That's funny how memory works, yeah. though, to tell us that that was, you know, something that existed from 2015 onwards. Yeah. And it's interesting because he that was not just invoked, that was invoked specifically in reaction to the fact that Republicans started jumping ship on him because of the, the tape, the Hollywood uh, tape. That's right. Right. So they start jumping ship on him and he says, all right, drain the swamp of all of them. And in fact, he comes into offices in, in his inaugural and he doesn't just point at Democrats going out. He says, all of these people in Washington, they've been taken advantage of you. And I am here to take back your country for you. That savior mentality yep. that we see. Being it's the exceptional me. Right. Exactly. You have split up your book into two very distinct acts here. So you have act one titled the exceptional me strategy version 1.0. And then you have act two, the Trump presidency or exceptional me 2.0. Then you have an epilogue too, dealing with exceptional me 3.0, we could probably say. With this exceptional me strategy version 1.0, I found it very interesting because you go back in time to say that he is employing a modern Jeremiah. And instead of celebrating American achievements, he's disparaging American achievements, Americans, politicians, everyone. But you trace this rhetorical decision back to Puritan ministers in Massachusetts Bay Colony, almost suggesting that going against American exceptionalism is an American exceptionalist practice in many ways. So this is something we've seen repeated throughout history in strategic moments when people are wanting to maybe consolidate power or use this for a specific purpose. Why did this strategy, though, work so well in the 2016 election with voters in particular? I would I would argue that the reason this strategy works so well, this our country is in ruins, we're not exceptional anymore. It's the politicians, both Democrats and Republicans, fault, right? So this is the strategy of uh, we're not exceptional, it's their fault, and there's only one way we can save this nation, right? He says it in his, uh, in his uh, um, nomination speech, uh, nobody knows the, the system like I do, which is why I alone can fix it. Right, so this is based off of the notion that he and he alone can do this, and he still employs this to date, and is, I watched him today um, in his tweets or his truth social today. Um, but the thing is, is I think, I think by 2016, I think even before that, the American people are a little tired and a little tired of, of candidates who they didn't ask for um, in both parties mm-hmm. being chosen for them. I, I think a lot of people were just kind of disillusioned with the system. 
And this brings about not only Donald Trump, but it brings out a Bernie Sanders, right? Two candidates that are appealing on completely different sides of the spectrum, but to the same notion of that system's kind of broken. And does everybody feel a little shafted here? Which they Mm -hmm. do, whether they... Should or not is a you know we can have that conversation separately, but I think people are feeling this way. And then in the run up before Trump throws his hat into this, I remember having conversations with people about this is going to be the Clinton versus Bush, right? Jeb Bush right. versus Hillary Clinton, and that seems like a broken system. Mm-hmm. If you've gotten to the point that the two parties all they can produce is from the same families that have already had the presidency then it feels broken to a lot of people. Right. They feel disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. And so Hillary Clinton stays in the game. I think she represents to many of them that establishment, that same old right. uh, people in power keeping themselves in power. And Donald Trump just completely takes a wrecking ball to it. We saw across, the lack of a better term, the Western world also around 2015, 2016, an uptick in, in populism, mm-hmm. Right. We're, we're thinking, I'm thinking specifically about Marie Le Pen in France, these places where populism really takes off because of that exact point that you just said, though, in terms of people are feeling frustrated with the system, they're feeling left out, maybe forgotten or falling behind there, which again, when you give them this, this opportunity of having a candidate who's saying, I'm the exception to the rule, I can solve your problems that really does create a a vast amount of support for that person, especially when somebody is feeling the system is so broken. He talks about all of that. He is calling out what a lot of Americans in their home were saying. Mm -hmm. Unsophisticated as it was, because he's not that sophisticated of a speaker and as problematic as everything was that he, or much of what he said uh, was, his strategy worked. And uh, the one thing that I tell a lot of people is that You can make a a lot of mistakes about Donald Trump, um, but don't think that he doesn't know what he's doing. Right. He knows, he very much knows what he's doing. He's doing it again right now. Got examples from his truth social as of late. Um, He's he's using the same strategy. Right. They have uh, sent us into ruins. We're no longer, I mean, in, in one of his truth social tweets, he says, we're no longer the standard. The standard sets us now. Right. We're not the leader of anything. We're yet again. He's saying we are unexceptional. It's Biden's fault. Right. It's also all of the politicians fault. But I think it's this language that gets the middle of the ground people um, saying, yeah, it, the system is kind of still broken. Right. Biden right. was in there for 30 some odd years and now he's the president. It doesn't feel like things are changing. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're still wondering whether there's there's whether there's an option outside of Donald Trump to break the system or at least, you know, renew the system and get some fresh blood into the system. Um, So I think people are still, there will be people who are still attracted to that in the face. Like this is cognitive dissonance at play. January 6th was horrible. And I'm going to vote for, not me, but I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. January 6th was a, was a threat to our democracy, and I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. Like, you can see people going down this path. So I think the importance of kind of understanding, A, this strategy, but also kind of understanding why it is that people are attracted to this is, is a path to kind of understanding, A, how to counter him sure. for those who want to take him out of office. We, ha- we need to understand that his, his supporters are uh, a very... 
complex group of people who come with all kinds of different interests and reasons for voting. And some of it's a rejection of the left um, that the left might have to do some introspection about. So there's just a lot kind of at play. Do you think that this almost constant barrage of messaging, which is still very much the exceptional me strategy, but it's just constant, is an intentional strategy, almost a a distraction from actually looking at the real issues at hand here. And instead saying, I will fix everything. Everything is broken without actually doing any of the hard work. Yeah. I mean, I think most of the people who have worked with him recognize that he didn't love the governing. He loved the the messaging, right? Mm-hmm. He watched te- television, saw how things played. So is it strategic to, to just completely uh, hit people with this barrage of, of messaging? Without a doubt, there is a possibility that we will, that the American public will get fatigued this time around. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how, especially in a general election, how much people can like live in all caps again right. all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just all rage all the time. And it's all him quibbling about his personal, you know, vendettas. Uh, vendettas. Yeah, exactly. So there might be a point where the the Republican Party, I would guess, especially considering he he would he would take them down and any of their candidates down at the drop of a hat if they went against him. Um, they might be biding their time to to to. I think they're definitely biding their time for a post-Trump Republican Party. Yeah, but in a way that keeps his supporters in. Sure. But they might keep him around for a lot longer than they really want to, just in the gesture of trying to keep his supporters in. So in Act 1, you're you're talking about, you know, his presidential election. And then in Act 2, we move to the Trump presidency, Exceptional Me Mm 2.0. I found Chapter 6, Me the People, really interesting (laughs) because it really dives into Trump's comparisons of himself to the original Make America Great sloganeer Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. And it's much like that cognitive dissonance that you're providing there because he imagines himself as Ronald Reagan, but but decidedly different. Mm -hmm. Because whereas Ronald Reagan really sought to be a president for all of the people, Mm -hmm. trying to unite as much as he knew his strategies weren't going to unite the nation, there was still this sentiment that he wanted to bring people together. Trump had a much, much different strategy that was there. Why do you think Donald Trump chose such an overtly populist tone to his official speeches, even after he was elected? Why was there not this sense of trying to bring a little bit more unity, a little bit more, we're all in this together. I will still save the nation, but I want to be a president to all. At the end of the day, it's about Trump. It's about preservation of Trump and Trump's Mm. image. So... The problem is, is that as a president, every president, every single president is going to have people that don't like them. Sure. That for Trump is the group of people you need to get rid of, right? He will he will explicitly refer to them as less American or not American. He's only representing those people who like him and who support him. Right. And if you don't like him and don't support him, you're not American anymore. You're not you're not good enough anymore, right? You're not you're not patriotic enough anymore. Because it comes down to him and his image, right? If it was for the preservation of the nation, if he was really imagining American exceptionalism in all of its wonder, it's a problematic concept 
from an academic point of view, it's a problematic concept in many ways. But if you're just thinking as a leader of a country, it is your go-to to think about how can I bring everybody together and how can I envision a country that moves forward that includes everybody, mm -hmm. that everybody gets to come to the table and play a part. His, his image or his imagination of that is it's different, right? It's those of us who have the right supporting me, um, understanding of the world, yeah. and uh, we're the true Americans. It's This is not implicit in his language. This is explicit. He says this stuff. We are the true Americans. Um, right? Even lately, uh, the last thing that, that he was talking about is them arresting him, right? We've got to save the nation from those people. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a us versus them within the American public. And so American exceptionalism is super constrained in that. Exceptional me is a very timely read as Donald Trump is gearing up for this next presidential election. And you chart the exceptional me strategy 3.0. Can you speak a little bit to what you are seeing as this 3.0 strategy currently underway? And I know you brought some some quotes and things. So I was looking through a speech at CPAC, and these are things that have just happened recently, and uh, some of his truth social. But I mean, the the funny thing is, is you know, once you get on his mailing list, even if you unsubscribe, he will they'll continue to send you stuff. So I get this stuff all the time from when I was writing this book, and his the language is the same. Right, he's back to we're unexceptional. Right, he's he's back to that because he's not in power. Right, because exceptionalism in his mind only happens when he is at the helm. We become exceptional when he's in charge, and we're no longer exceptional uh, if he's not in charge anymore. Right now, in the CPAC speech, he was talking about I'm the only choice. I'm the only I'm the only hope for saving this nation. His new slogan is Save America. Right? It was make America great, and it was keep America great because he was in power. Right. And if you keep me in power, then we continue to be exceptional. Um, now it's save America. Do you think the fact that he does not have access to these mainstream platforms like what he had before? I don't think Truth Social is probably considered a mainstream platform no. yet. So do you think that that's going to change his strategy? I think that'll definitely be a factor, whether he's uh, how strategic he is. I don't know. His team will think about kind of where to put these things in. He's just going to keep typing in all caps, right? right? He's just going to give the rage and they'll find the ways to kind of get that those messages out. And the more he becomes a legitimate possibility as a candidate and as, a, a, again, a, st a standard bearer for his party, then everybody's going to have to pay attention to him again. I think the, the people really thinking about the strategy this time around is is – um, people in mainstream media outlets, news organizations, CNN, and people who just gave him all of the time in 2016, right? right? Gave all of the air in the room to him. I think they're thinking strategically about how do we make sure that he's covered as just another one of the candidates mm -hmm. instead of the loudest person. And therefore he gets all the headlines and he gets all of our stories. Trump's not going to change his strategy. Yeah. Trump's Everyone gonna, else going to change uh, around. Other people will change around him and adapt and see if they can overcome him. Um, but I think he, he just stays in. I am the only answer. These people are going to tell you that they're the that they've got the policies, but they've been in power for so long. And where are we? Right. Right. He's going to come out with the same strategy. 
So are you going to continue studying Trump through this next phase, do you think? Or are you going to move on? I'm going to move on. <laughs> Um, Trump is exhausting. I'm not entirely convinced it's going to be much different than what I've already written. Sure. Because I've been watching his communications and sure there's a a, a change, small change or two, Mm -hmm. but by and large, he's, he's a predictable man. What has the reception of your work been? You know, I can imagine some of Trump's deepest supporters may, even though I think you take a very balanced tone throughout the book, really considering, you know, you're studying rhetoric, rhetoric, you're studying communication, you're studying strategy. It's not an overtly political book, although I do love the cover Mm -hmm. of your book significantly, but you know, I think so would Trump supporters that are there. Strangely. Yeah. Yeah. So what has the reception been like? Um, The reception has been good. I think by and large, when I talk I do come at this from the perspective of somebody who's who's fascinated by humans, mm-hmm. and I understand the complexity of humans. I, I know that all, all Trump supporters aren't a single homogenous glob of people. So the tone I usually try and take is in respect for humans who are just you know, trying to get through their lives and gravitate to one party or the other for semi-legitimate reasons. The way we write and the way we think and the way we understand politics is, is through the lens of a couple of Americans, right? Right. And uh, so we really wanted to write this book that was accessible um, to anybody, right? Mm -hmm. That still had the rigor of, I mean, we have coded every presidential speech since the beginning of presidency, right? We we have done the rigorous work, but we we did our best. I hope it it comes off that way as uh, in in presenting it in such a way that's accessible to anybody, right? Anybody who's fascinated by politics can read this book. Yeah. Well, that's a great pitch for your book. Well, thank you, Jason, so much for joining me today. This was a pleasure.